Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, man, I, I, you know, we were talking to our family about uh, things that we're thankful for this weekend. The top of Caleb's list was video games, which is no surprise to anyone. Uh, he added a few things like family and all that kind of stuff. But just as we begin this morning, I just wanted to say, like, one of the things that I am most grateful for uh, is this community and the church here at River City. And it is such an honor and a blessing to get to pastor and serve you and, and to get to be a part of following Jesus. Jesus with you, and, and so I'm just really grateful for this community and for the people that God's bringing together here to be on the mission of growing in the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches, and so grateful for you all. Um, if you're new or visiting, man, I want to invite you into this community and invite you into being a part of what God is up to and the ways God is at work in this community and through the people here, and so I want to encourage you towards that. We'd also love to invite you into our fall sermon series uh, this Sunday. We've been working our way this fall through the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and we just finished up the first of these two letters last week, and this morning we're going to be continuing on with Second Thessalonians. Shacker, Number two comes after number one, right? Um, but if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's important to have a little bit of background and context for these two letters as a whole as we dive in this morning. You see, the, the Thessalonians, this young group of Christians that Paul's writing to in these letters, uh, was really young in their faith. They had just come to faith in Jesus and been formed into a church when the Apostle Paul came to their city. And that's a story you can read about in Acts chapter 17. And while a bunch of people had become Christians through Paul's preaching of the gospel, he only ended up staying in Thessalonica just a couple of weeks, three, four at most, because the Jews in the city who'd eventually rejected Paul's message and the message of the gospel, they, they basically thrown him out of town. They stirred up a citywide riot. They arrested the person that was hosting Paul and his companions, and they accused them all of, of, of treasonously defying Caesar for proclaiming that Jesus was king. And so Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, which are two young pastors that he was kind of training on the job, they're forced to flee Thessalonica in the middle of the night. And yet because these people weren't just like checklists on some kind of like evangelistic spreadsheet for the Apostle Paul, but were people who he really genuinely cared about, he's really deeply concerned about them. And over the course of the next few months, he tries desperately to get back to them, but he, he keeps being thwarted from doing so. And so fearing the worst, he decides to send Timothy back to go check on this young, this young church. And to his great relief, Timothy, Timothy returns to him with this report about how they're doing. And this report not only alleviates Paul's fears, but it really brings him this deep sense of encouragement because what Timothy reports back is that although the Thessalonians are facing really harsh persecution and opposition for their newfound faith in Jesus, they're, they're not just surviving spiritually, they're thriving spiritually, so much so that reports of their faith and the way it's transforming their lives are starting to reach the whole region in which their city is located. But while Timothy's report was really largely positive, we do find in 1 Thessalonians, there's a couple of concerns that he relays to Paul uh, that prompted that, the writing of that first letter back to them, chief of which were some really pressing questions that this young group of believers had about Jesus's second coming. This, this day when Jesus promised he would return in person, in glory, that he would usher in his kingdom once and for all, that he would set evil to, to, to pass, that he would set all things right. 
And what you see as you read the letters is that the reality and the implications of this day are front and center throughout the whole letter. They, they're woven throughout all that Paul is writing to them. It comes up in, in seven of the eight chapters in these two short letters. But what we've seen in our passage and what we've seen in our study so far is that Paul's not just trying to answer some trivia questions. He's not just trying to like uh, deal with people's curiosity. Instead, what he's trying to do is he's trying to help Christians understand how the, the confident hope that they have about Jesus's return is meant to have this profoundly transformative effect on their everyday lives. In other words, the, the central theme of Paul's writing in both of these letters that we've been studying this fall is about how faith in Jesus's return produces a sanctifying hope in God's people. Right? It produces this kind of hope that doesn't just change the way that we, that we, the way that we die one day in the future, but it, it, it changes the kind of hope that utterly transforms the way that we live each and every day until that one. It's the kind of hope that causes us to increasingly look more and more like Jesus, inside and out, in the way that we think and act and relate. As we begin to study Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians this morning, we're going to see that this theme of sanctifying hope is again front and center in this letter as well. And that's because what we find out is that not long after Paul had written to them the first time, he'd apparently gotten another report. And we don't know exactly where that report came from or, or who brought it back to him, but he'd gotten another report about how they were doing. And, and the message that this report relayed is that not only had the trials and the persecution that the Thessalonians were facing intensified, but that confusion and fear about Jesus's return still plagued this group of believers. And so in an effort to both encourage them in the midst of their suffering and to replace their confusion and fear about Jesus's return with confidence and hope, Paul writes to them again a second time. And what we're going to see him doing in this second letter is basically readdressing and expanding on a number of things that he taught them either while he was with them the first time or that he wrote about to them in the first letter. And as we take a look at the way Paul begins this second letter, what we're going to see him doing is he's going to be, what he's trying to do is direct the Thessalonians' attention away from their current suffering and away from the current difficulties and, and things that they're facing. And he's trying to help point them towards this future reality, this, this glorious reality that awaits them when Jesus comes back, when he returns. And what I want to show you this morning as we study this first chapter of Second Thessalonians is, is how setting your eyes on Jesus's glorious return it not only empowers you to persevere while you wait for him, but it actually fuels your commitment to living for him in the waiting. See, setting your eyes on his return, it empowers your perseverance and it fuels your commitment to living for him. See, in other words, what Paul's trying to help us to see is that what you believe about how the story ends it utterly transforms the way that you live now. And so, uh, such a challenging and encouraging passage. I can't wait to show it to you this morning. And so, with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into this second letter and see if we can't find the sanctifying hope that faith in Jesus' return is meant to produce. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for you. And we come to you this morning, as we do every single time, uh, really needing you. 
needing you to both illuminate your word so that we can understand it, but needing you as well to cause the truths of your word, not just to be informational to us, but to be transformational in our lives. And so God, I just don't have any power to do that at all. And so we need you. We are dependent on you, God. We pray that as we think this morning about your return and how that transforms the way that we live now, we pray that it might fill us with the perseverance we need to keep living for you in the midst of hard things, and that it might as well fuel our commitment to to living now as we will the day when you return. And so we need you for all of it, and we pray that you'd meet us in our need for you, God, for our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. Like I mentioned, we're going to be this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Reads this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love that all of you have for one another is increasing Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and your faith in all the persecutions and all the trials that you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. For God is just, and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they'll be punished with everlasting destruction. They'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And on that day, he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. And we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so a lot going on in these 12 verses, but as we take a look at the way Paul begins this letter, what we're going to see is that he's basically trying to accomplish three things in the passage, right? He, first, he commends the Thessalonians for their faith and their continuing growth in the midst of continued hardship, and then he, he offers a, a comfort or an encouragement to them to bolster their perseverance in the midst of the things that they're facing. And finally, third, he challenges them to, to continue to keep growing and maturing. And so commendation, comfort, and challenge, that's kind of our three C's, our roadmap for this morning as we take a look at this passage, right? And we see that first, that first C, we see commendation verses three and four. We see Paul beginning his, this letter to the Thessalonians by commending them for continually growing in faith and in love. If you remember, those were two specific things that he addressed in his first letter to them, that he told them that he was praying for, that he wanted them to keep working on and growing, that they would keep growing in faith and in love for one another. 
Right? He writes in verse 3, he says it this way, We ought to always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love you have for one another is increasing. So it's more that the specific words Paul uses here to describe their, their growth in these areas, they highlight how it, it wasn't a kind of growth that was just like surface level, but instead it was a growth that was both deep and wide. It was their, he says their faith was getting deeper and deeper. Right? Their love for one another was spreading to more areas of their life and their community. Like we saw Paul praying for them last week at the end of 1 Thessalonians, God indeed was at work sanctifying them through and through. But what stands out most to Paul, the thing he is most encouraged by, the thing he's, he's most proud of, isn't just that they've continued to grow in the areas that he was praying and challenging them to grow the first time he, he wrote to them, but that their continued growth was happening in the midst of all kinds of trials and persecution. You see, in other words, the things that Paul is so proud of, right, is that they're not, not just that they're growing spiritually, but that they are persevering. They're enduring. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever tried to grow a plant before. Uh, but plants are harder to grow than one might imagine, right? I have killed way more plants than I have ever planted, right? Like, my success rate is low, right? But what I do know about planting is that what you want to do whenever you're planting something is you want to start with the, the best growing conditions possible, right? You want to set up the ideal growing conditions, right? You want, to, you want to make sure that it has good, fresh soil, not like rocky dirt that's been used up by something else, right? And you, you want to make sure it has the right amount of water and the right amount of sunlight for whatever that plant needs. And you might even dump some miracle Grow on that sucker just to like give it the best possible chance of making it, right? And you rip up any surrounding weeds so that those precious plant nutrients don't get stolen away by something else, right? See, planting is, is hard, and you, it feels like you kind of need the ideal growing conditions to make it work. And the reality is that we often tend to think about spiritual growth in the same way, that it's only going to happen if we have the ideal growing conditions. But what we see in the lives of the Thessalonians and in countless other examples throughout the Bible is that God is the kind of spiritual gardener that can grow a water lily in the midst of the desert. You see, you do not need ideal growing conditions to grow spiritually because God is not dependent on the conditions. So you don't need to be in the perfect church or the perfect small group. You don't need to have the best job, a job that you love and, and one that isn't too stressful. You don't need to be perfectly healthy. You don't need kids that are doing great in school or in life. You don't need to be financially worry-free. You don't need to have all your friends and neighbors and coworkers like you and think highly of you. You don't need to have all of your trauma dealt with and worked through. You just need him. You just need him. And when you have him, when you're clinging to him, when your faith is rooted in him, then you can be characterized by continually increasing spiritual maturity and growth, even in the worst kinds of growing conditions you can imagine. In the midst of all kinds of trials and suffering, when you're facing opposition, even persecution, one commentator summed it up this way. He said, these adverse external circumstances had certainly not hindered the Thessalonians' growth. If anything, they promoted it. 
See, what's more is that Paul goes on to tell the Thessalonians, verse 5, is that, is that being characterized by perseverance and growth in the midst of trials and persecution, in the midst of really hard situations, he tells them that that is evidence, it's proof that God's judgment about them, that his verdict about them, that in the end they will be deemed worthy of his eternal kingdom, that that judgment is right and true, that it's accurate. He's saying the only way that you could be characterized by perseverance and growth in the midst of suffering is if God is the one who is doing that work in you. And like we saw last week, God always finishes what he starts. Those he's called to faith in Jesus, he will be faithful, like we saw last week, to sanctify through and through and to keep blameless until Jesus comes again so that they will be counted worthy to enter his eternal kingdom when he comes to usher it in once and for all. See, that brings us to the second thing Paul wants to do in the passage. He's, He's not just commending them for their continued growth and their perseverance. He wants to comfort and encourage these weary and beleaguered Christians At the heart of the way Paul does this is by inviting them to look past their present reality, which is full of suffering and is full of injustice. And he wants them to look ahead to this glorious reality that awaits them when Jesus returns, while they're going to bask in the vindicating justice of God. He writes to them in verses 6 and 7, he says it this way, God is just. And he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. See, Paul is telling them, it's like he's saying, guys, I know that you are in the weeds right now. And I know that following Jesus is costing you a lot right now. And I'm not telling you to ignore that. I'm not telling you that it's not happening. I'm not telling you that it doesn't matter. He says, but I want to encourage you to take your eyes off of what is immediately in front of you. And I want to encourage you to look ahead, look down the road. I need you to see where the road that you're on is leading. See, because there is coming a day when all your suffering and all the injustice that you are experiencing will be set right. It's like he's telling them, I know that it doesn't feel like God is very just right now. But I promise you when Jesus returns, God's justice will be undeniable and unavoidable. I see, and in verses 6 through 10, what Paul's doing is he, he highlights how God's divine justice is going to have kind of these two hands, these two aspects of it. And the first is that we see this that God's, God's justice, his divine justice will include the punishment of the wicked. In verse 6, he writes it this way, God is just, and he'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you. You see, the people who are persecuting these Christians, they'll receive the divine retribution for their actions. And to be clear, what Paul is not saying is that God's going to get revenge on them. But instead, what he's trying to articulate is is, is that God is going to give them what they deserve. See, the trouble that will befall the enemies of God's people is not some like rage-fueled vengeance. It is instead the right and deserved just judgment of the ultimate divine judge. He is not over-punishing. He is accurately doing so. 
See, the Bible repeatedly highlights the reality that because God is just, sin cannot go unpunished. And that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable because for so many of us, the idea that God is both a God of love and a God of justice are these kind of divergent ideas, right? If God is love, then there's no way he could judge people for their sin. But the truth is that a God who doesn't punish sin is not loving or just. He is neither of those things. And if I told my wife that I loved her, but I didn't care about or I didn't pursue justice, if she was harmed or wronged, that's not love, that's indifference, And indifference is not an aspect of love. Indifference is a result of hatred. See, a God who does not bring about justice is not a God of love. Those are divergent ideas. As many have pointed out, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life, one without much experience of oppression or injustice, to not want a God who punishes sin. See, but it's really important that you see that it's not just people who persecute Christians that will receive God's just retribution for their actions. Verse 8, Paul goes on to say it this way, that God will punish those who do not know him and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, at the root of persecution isn't a rejection or a hatred of people. See, Paul says it's a rejection and a hatred for God himself. In Matthew 10, Jesus warns his disciples. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Because of me. See, persecution is not the real problem. See, Paul's trying to help the Thessalonians to see that the persecution that they are facing, it is a symptom of a heart that is sick with the disease of sin and who has rejected God in himself. And persecution is not the only symptom of our sin-sick hearts or even the worst of those symptoms. But Paul wants to help them to see that at the root of the persecution that they're facing, at the root of sin, is not a problem with people, it's a rejection of God himself. And that's why the kind of trouble that those who have rejected God and persecuted his people, the kind of punishment that they are going to receive, Paul says, is so severe. Verse 9 reads it this way, they will be punished, he says, with everlasting destruction. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, sin is ultimately not an offense against people. You have to understand this. We tend to think that sin is bad behavior, right? That sin is like the way that we hurt ourselves or the way that we hurt other people, right? That's wrong actions. But the way that the Bible defines sin is that it's not, a, that it's not bad behavior against people, but that it is in fact mutinous rebellion against an eternal and infinite creator God. See, and that's why the punishment for sin is not merely just death or just extinguishment, but is instead, as Paul writes, everlasting destruction. That phrase is is a word that means uh, to bring to complete and utter ruin. It was a word that was used in the ancient world to describe something that that had been wrecked, that had been rendered completely useless, that its function was no longer possible. The Westminster Catechism famously sums up, says this, it says, human beings were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what Paul is saying here is that the heart of the punishment for sin is the loss of that eternal purpose. 
the very thing that you and I were made for, it is lost and taken away. It's destroyed. One commentator wrote it this way, those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and to love and obey Jesus Christ will incur at his return an infinite and irreparable loss. See, Paul goes on to outline the means of that destruction. And what we see in verse 9 is that it, it's not characterized by the presence of some just like horrific torture device, but instead it is characterized by the gut-wrenching absence of the single most important thing in all the universe, the very presence of God himself. Colossians chapter 1 highlights how not only is the whole universe made by God and for God, but that he is the one who is himself holding every atom of the universe together. Without him, everything falls apart. But it's not just that he's the creator and sustainer of everything, but that as the definition of goodness, he himself is the source of all that is good. And so the loss of his presence is fundamentally the loss of all that makes life worth living. One pastor put it this way, he said, whether you are seeking God or trying to get away from him, we are all living off the presence of his goodness. And if his presence were to be taken away, it would be like the sun going dark. You would utterly freeze. You couldn't think, you couldn't love, you couldn't marvel at the taste of an incredible steak or the beauty of a song. You would lose your very humanity. St. Augustine, he famously stummed up the horror of this kind of just punishment. He says it this way, to be lost out of the kingdom of God to be an exile from the city of God, to be alienated from the life of God, to have no share in that great goodness for which God has laid up for those that trust in him would be a punishment so great that no torments we know of continued through as many ages as man's imagination could conceive could even be compared with it. You see, Paul reminds us of the first aspect of God's just justice is that it will bring about the punishment of those who have rejected him. But while for those who have rejected Jesus, the day of his return will come as a terrifying and horrible day, for those who have trusted in him, Paul makes clear that that day will be marvelous and glorious. Right? Because not only does God's justice bring about the punishment of the wicked, we see that it will also bring about the vindication of the righteous. Not only will they experience relief and escape from all their sufferings and trials, like verse 6, but, but even better, as verse 10 puts it, and it's so important that you see this part. He, when Jesus returns, Paul writes in verse 10 that he will be glorified in his, holy, uh, in his people and marveled at among all those who have believed. See, Paul is saying that when Jesus is finally revealed from heaven, you and I will not, those who have put their trust in him, won't just see his glory. We won't just marvel at his coming with fire in the clouds. We won't just be amazed by it. Paul says that we will share in that glory. We will radiate that glory ourselves. Because at the coming, he says, Jesus won't just be glorified by or through his people. The passage says he will be glorified in his people. One commentator put it this way, not only will the Lord Jesus be revealed objectively in his own splendor so that we see it, but his splendor will be revealed in us so that we will be transformed by it 
and will become vehicles by which it is displayed. Will be like a filament of a light bulb, which itself glows with light and heat when the current passes through it. But we will be more than just a filament which glows temporarily, only to become dark and cold again. Instead, we will be radically and permanently changed, for we will glow forever with the glory of Christ, as indeed he glowed with the glory of his Father. See, do do you see what Paul is trying to encourage these Christians with? Do you see the comfort he's offering them? He says, when Jesus comes back, you are going to be transformed. You are going to become everything God made you to be from the beginning. See, you and I were made to be God's image-bearing representatives in the world. We were made to fill the world with the glory of God as we enjoy Him. And when Jesus comes back, that purpose is going to be brought to completion. And you and I won't just see and marvel at His glory. We're going to share in His glory. We're going to shine with His glory. And it's going to be this incredible day, this, this day of ultimate fulfillment, right? See, Paul's telling the Thessalonians that at us, when you, when you set your eyes on the future glory, that it will bring you comfort in the midst of all the hard things that you are walking through now, all the suffering and injustice that you are experiencing, it has an end date. Right? When Jesus comes back, the tables will be turned. The wicked who are flourishing now will be punished. The righteous who are suffering now will be vindicated because God is just. See, but Paul doesn't just want to commend, and he doesn't just want to comfort these Thessalonians. He wants to challenge them as well. And he does this in the form of a prayer in verses 11 through 12. With this in mind, he says, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he might bring to fruition every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. He says, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, essentially what Paul is praying in those last couple of verses, what he's saying is that the, that kind of glorious transformation that's going to happen completely and in full when Jesus comes back, that that transformation, it isn't just reserved for that final day. He says, it will be completed on that final day, but it begins now. See, you can begin to radiate the glory of God in part now, and you can begin to glow with his empowering presence today as you live out, Paul says, every sanctified desire that he gives you by his power for his glory. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you become characterized by doing today what you will be doing on that final day? You start to marvel at Jesus, that's how. See, listen, you and I are not changed by things that we think on a head level are true and right and good. We are not transformed into the kind of people that we just like, that we have a positive admiration for. 
You are transformed by what you marvel at. You are transformed by what you are amazed and captivated by. You see, the secret to real meaningful transformation in your life over time is that you spend time marveling at Jesus. See, being amazed by who he is and all that he has done for you, because you are captivated by him and all that he has done for you, what happens is that you will invariably start to become more like him. Awe and wonder, they change us. And when what we awe and wonder at, what we marvel at is Jesus himself. What invariably happens is that we start to become more and more like him. And when he returns, that transformation will be complete and full. And we won't just sparkle with a little bit of glory now and then. But we will radiate his glory as we're transformed perfectly into his image in the end. And the way that you start that process now is by continuing to marvel at him every day. And so every week, our celebration of communion, it's a chance for you to marvel at Jesus. It's a chance for you to be amazed at all that he has done for you. And so communion doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember that his body and his blood were broken and shed so that instead of receiving the just punishment that our sin deserves when he returns, we might instead have hope that we'll become all that he has made us to be. Instead of terror, we'll be full of marvel. Instead of losing our purpose, it will be fulfilled eternally in him. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. There's two tables, one on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a joyful reminder of all that you have put your faith in Jesus to be and do for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, and, and if you're realizing you just kind of have this kind of head-level familiarity with him, but it's not a heart-level devotion to him, or you just still have doubts about stuff and you're just not sure, then I just want to encourage you. We are so glad that you are here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's the only thing that changes your status and standing with him is faith in Jesus. That's it. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And River City is, and we want to help you to know him. And so wherever you're at, as we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and this passage is meant to convict you. Because while you may not be persecuting Christians for their faith, what your life reveals is that you have rejected God as your king and have enthroned yourself. And when he returns, you will begin to spend eternity paying the penalty for your rebellion against an infinite and eternal God. And the reason why you are here this morning is because God is calling you to put your faith in him and to turn from your rebellion towards repentance and towards him so that you might instead spend eternity doing what you were made to do, glorifying and enjoying him forever. But while For some of you, this passage might be meant to convict. I think for others, it's meant to encourage. Primarily, like it was for the Thessalonians, 
See, the suffering and trials and injustice you are facing today, they will come to an end when the just judge is revealed from heaven and he's going to vindicate all those who have put their trust in him to be their forgiver and their leader. And he will justly judge all those who have rejected him and his people. And because you can trust him to bring about perfect justice in the end, you can have comfort now. Not because you're getting justice in the moment. Not because the trials or difficulties disappear or end. But because you know that even though you are powerless to bring about the end of those things, that the God that you worship is anything but powerless. There is no situation that will go unresolved by the just judge. In the end, he will execute justice perfectly. And that brings you comfort because the burden of carrying out judgment and making the world just doesn't fall on you ultimately. See, some of you are here this morning and the reality is, is that you are kind of stuck in this cycle of just of just pain and angst because you are not able to bring about the justice that you think is due. But God is. And because justice falls on him, right? And because unlike human justice, God always gets it right. The innocent are never convicted. The guilty are never found innocent. His judgments are always correct. You can trust him to do it in the end. And because God's judgments are always, not just always correct, but because his punishments are always just and fair, you can trust that he's never going to demand more than what is just. And he's never going to be swayed by some wealthy benefactor to let someone off the hook. His humans, we're, we're given to seeking retribution and vindictiveness. We want to see people pay for what they've done. But God's punishments are always just. They are always accurate. One commentator puts it this way, he is incapable of overpunishing, and he is incapable of underpunishing. His justice leaves no room for cruelty or vindictiveness. When you trust God to be the just judge who brings about justice in the end, not only can you be, have comfort, but you can be set free to be characterized by mercy and forgiveness instead of retribution and revenge. See, the good news of God's justice is that you don't have to be the just judge yourself. Not only are you a terrible judge, but you can't bear that weight. If Jesus, though, is the just judge, then you, that you don't have to be, and so you're free from that weight. And so for some, the passage convicts, for some, it's meant to encourage, but I think for all of us, it's meant to challenge that we might live today in view of that glorious future day, that we might ask God to help us to marvel at Jesus so that we'll be filled with a passion for his glory and the power we need to start living for that glory now, but not just for our own good, but so that those who are currently living in rebellion against the just judge might come to faith in him through you. So that Jesus' return for them might transform from a day full of terror to one that is full of hope and glory and goodness. You see, 
Paul wants the Thessalonians to see that when Jesus returns, it is a day of both judgment and justice. And what you believe about how the story ends transforms the way you live now. So might we be a people who live full of hope because of faith in Jesus and whose lives are given now to living for his glory and calling others to do the same so that in the end we might be who we've made us to be and enjoy and glory with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for you. And in the midst of a passage that often is easy just to feel so uncomfortable, we are grateful for that these words this morning are meant to encourage us. They're meant to comfort your people by the reminder that you indeed are the just judge and that your empowering presence enabling us to persevere and endure is proof that we belong to you, Jesus, and that you are making us ready for your eternal kingdom and that the work that you begin, you promise to complete. And so might we join you, Jesus, in living for your glory today. Might you empower us by your spirit to live for you and not for ourselves so that we might begin to experience now what we will experience in full on the day you come back. And so that as many as possible might join us in glory with you, we pray. Amen.